Okay, my 32nd countdown did not come on, but my name is Bart Sharp, and this is Becoming Quantum Conscious. And um, we're on United Public Radio, and I don't know what flashed before our, my eyes there, but I guess that's the uh, replacement for the countdown. Once again, this is Becoming Quantum Conscious, and I am Bart Sharp, and you're on United Public Radio Network and, U and UFO Paranormal Radio Network, 107.7 and 105.3 out of the beautiful city of New Orleans, Louisiana, and we are worldwide. We are on Roku, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Spreaker, and other platforms, and literally it's connected all around the world. And so no telling where everybody is, but we're really glad you're here today because we really have a great show today uh, with somebody that, as I have read her book, which is The Madonna Secret. Uh, and uh, it's really a fabulous book. It's a novel. And uh, we have the author here today, Sophie Strand. And welcome to the show, Sophie. Sophie. Thank you so much, Bart. And, and thank you for just saying that sweet thing about my book. Thank you. Oh, it's a really powerful book, everybody. Uh, it has such wonderful descriptions. And it's one of my favorite topics uh, because Mary Magdalene, uh, you know, some legends and stories say that she went to France and went to this magical land where I do spiritual tours. And so all the mag heads, as we call them, all live in Southwest France and, you know, study Magdalene and stuff. And um, something so unique about Sophie is that, well, she's a very skilled author, but you always get this intuitive sense that she feels things very deeply and brings that out into the story about Mary Magdalene. And I guess I just wanted to start, it's like, why is Mary Magdalene so important in this day and age, do you think? It's mm, a good question. Well, I think it's less so that she is individually so important right now. And it's more that we're in an age where stories that were suppressed, that were maligned, that were erased and hid and persecuted for so long are poking up from the ground again. That, you know, the queer voices, female voices, voices that are non-white males are suddenly emerging, mm -hmm. you know, and, and literally emerging in, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nagamati scriptures, you know, the Gnostic Christian texts that predate the um, canon, the canon uh, of the Gospels that are probably closer to the historical Jesus. So we're getting these alternative takes on stories we think we know well. And then a moment in time when we can really see that 2,000 years of Christianity as mistranslated by the Roman Empire, as co-opted by empire, has not been good for the environment, for women, for people. <laughs> it might be interesting to go back and replant it in its complex anthropological and ecological context and its entanglements. And I do think that the Magdalene 
as a woman, as obviously being a key character whose voice has been repeatedly suppressed, might be an important person to ask for her story. Um, and of course, we have lots of folklore. We have all of these texts that was, were suppressed that are coming back. We have a history of iconography, of heretical groups like the Cathars, that I'm sure is someone who's spent a lot of time in France, you know a lot about. Yes. But she's, she's in no way been forgotten, but she's never been accepted by the dominant paradigm. So I think that she's she's an interesting person to ask for advice on how to compost Christianity, how to compost a narrative that does not seem well matched with its original characters. Yeah, wow, what a great answer. And and it's it's really interesting with with Mary Magdalene as you talk about this age because when you look at it astrologically, mm. the last 2000 years of um I can't remember uh, the last age, but it's the age of um, man-made law. And the Romans were experts at man-made law. Right. Of course, yeah. if you didn't follow a man-made law, a man-made man would confront you on it very abruptly. Uh, however, this next era uh, of Aquarius is all about nature-made law. That's what mm -hmm. I'm for. Wait, isn't it Aquarius to Pisces? That's my friend who's an astrologer was telling yes, me. Yeah. Yes, it's Pisces. It just keeps slipping slip my mind. But the important thing is we are in that new age and we have transferred over. Uh, according to my uh, guest next week is Peter Craig. We were talking about this. We pre-recorded the show that he uh, went into the Thing and he's, nobody exactly knows when it's going to transfer, but his theory was it transferred officially, energetically, and astrologically about three months ago. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a really huh. cool guy. I'm going to uh, have to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. And, and so we have this woman that you've written about, and it's really great with your book because it's your own story. And it's a lot of the components with Mary Magdalene, but it's a fictional story. It is something that our imagination can follow and apply to our own lives. Because this is a woman who lived in a society where men, where women were defined in a certain way to be passive, to have children, to almost be possessions. And of course, did not learn how to write, but yet she never really believed in any of that. She stayed true to her own course, even as a little child, to be more. Yeah. And, and it seems like a difficult thing to have done. I mean, she, I, I wouldn't say that it's an easy path for her to take. She doesn't, you know, we, it's so interesting that you, do these pilgrimages in France because the frame narrative of the story is that an old woman in France, a man, Lucas, who I based on the gospel writer Lucas, um, goes to find Mary Magdalene to finally ask for her side of the story. And she, of course, is in exile in France where this folklore has, has is deeply rooted, Magdalene folklore. And so the idea is that she's not in Egypt, she's not in her homeland of Judea, She's in France. And what is, what is it like to stick to your, to your guns and to really stand up for what you believe in and then end up way far away from your family and from your kin? 
Um, what, what does that feel like? So that sorrow of exile is really um, an important theme, I think, to me. Yes, and, and as, a, as Magdalene experienced in her childhood, it was like the symbol that I learned in France for Mary Magdalene is the tower. Yeah. And of course, she as a child, and I'm not going to reveal too much detail of the book because it's such a wonderful journey, but she would be out in this particular tower or on top of her roof looking at the stars, saying prayers, meditating, uh, and connecting to something she, she really did not intellectually understand, but she kind of knew she had to do it. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I'm sure as a Magdalene, as a maghead, as you said, which I love that term, <laughs> you, I'm sure you know about this, but perhaps our listeners don't, which is there's been a, a modern um, erasure conscious mistranslation of Magdalene as representing a place. But Magdalene comes from Migdal Inn, which means the tower. Mm. And there were no places on any maps, be they Jewish, be they Roman, until 200 years after Christ, where even anything is even called Migdal. I, I like to say to people that it would be equivalent to calling a town building or house <laughs> and that it would make no that we forget that the aramaic of the time period because everything has been mistranslated it's been put through a game of telephone we forget about the context of what would have made sense what makes much more sense is that we know from the canonical gospels from apocryphal stories that jesus gave people nicknames you know he called the zebedee brothers the thunder brothers he called shimon simon peter rock um, that he loved that, and honestly, we have Miriam Magdalene, Miriam the Tower. Um, so, what's much more interesting to me is to think about what that nickname might have meant. Does it have scriptural tradition? The Tower of the Flock. What, what does it mean? Does it mean the tower that sees over people? Is it somewhat intimidating? Is it a name that denotes intimacy? Um, and so, for me, the Tower is a really interesting way of looking at the Magdalene as being nicknamed by by the character of Jesus, um, and then to reclaim that name. I mean, one thing I was interested in is a lot of theologians, historical scholars that I love, have oftentimes been incredibly rig rigorous with their scholarship until they come to that name. And I always have to think that it's not laziness, it's a conscious erasure, that they say that there's a place called Magdal Magdala, but Magdala wasn't a place until um, the Jews have been exiled from Galilee wow. and Judea, and until um, Romanized peoples had come over and taken over and renamed everything well after the sack of Jerusalem and well after the collapse of that entire ecosystem. Mm. It wasn't a place. She couldn't wow. have been to Magdala because it wasn't actually in um, existence. Yeah. Well, I admire your, your knowledge of history and, and the details of all of what that is. And I I've, I know your mom and dad. I know your mom <laughs> and dad. They've been on yeah. the show, and they're writers, and, and they they've are. written really great books. But uh, you seem to embody uh, so much of that, uh, this great intellectual uh, pursuit. And at the same time, when I read your story, and I read some of the 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 real gem of some of this book is your descriptions and mm -hmm. how it feels to embody a certain feeling inside of you, which Mary or Miriam in the book feels very deeply. 
And yeah. this, this really kind of bleeds over into intuition that you can feel and describe stuff so deeply. Thank, um, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it's it's like this guy I was uh, interviewing yesterday, Peter Craig. He says I'm not intuitive at all. I'm I'm a I'm an empiricist. I'm practical, uh, and yet he, you know, has all of these workings with angels. And and when I'm around him, I get really bleary eyed because it's so powerful. I can hardly concentrate. Uh, so maybe you're in that boat of that do intuition. It's so ingrained in you that you don't even realize it's happening. Well, I have a feeling, which is we have this idea of intuition or psychism or channeling as being supernatural, but mm -hmm. I actually think it's profoundly natural. I think Indeed. we have a very narrow epistemological frame, epistemology meaning ways of knowing, that yes. is relatively recent, born out of white Eurocentric enlightenment paradigms. And the truth is that the world over, people have been smelling, tasting, feeling, reading leaf patterns, watching the stars, tracking their own body cycles in ways of knowing that are much bigger and wider and more fertile than the, the very narrow empiricist lens we abide by now. Um, and so for me, you know, intuition is not supernatural. It's not miraculous, it's embodied. It's the fact that my senses evolved over a long time in concert with an environment, that my hand is this shape because it fit into an ecological niche. It started as a mistake and became an adaption. And so my body is exquisitely keyed to an ecological dialogue and to reading weather systems, to smelling things, knowing that certain weather is coming. You know, and for me, that's really my spirituality is entering back into that sensual embodied dialogue whereby I am being used as a mouthpiece for a more than human music. You know, for my, one of my favorite parts of scripture is the Song of Songs. And I oftentimes say it's an ecology. It's not a text. You have, you don't know who the speaker is. Is it the woman, the lover, the brothers, the foxes, there's smells, there's touch, there's movement and music. It's, it's overabundant. It's entangled. It um, mm -hmm. explodes the idea of the atomized self that we work so yeah. hard on containing. And so for me, what seems so sad about the gospel as it, it's been tra translated, mistranslated, ossified, broken down is that Jesus seems like a person who loved to use nature metaphors. He lived most of the time outside. He encouraged mutual aid, cooking, dirtiness, you know, telling stories that made people interrupt you, you know, taste and smell. He seems to be very much, he called himself the bridegroom more than he did the son of God. The bridegroom, which any, you know, normal Jewish person at that time period would have known referred to the Song of Songs, this sensual, erotic, divine. Um, yes. And so for me, the most important thing about writing this book was, yes, I wanted it. I love historical fiction that's densely researched. And some Magdalene literature upsets me because it's not well researched. It, it, it erases the Jewishness of these people. It erases the complex political machinations, the textures, the foods. And I love having that detail the most important thing for me was if the gospels are disembodied and I was going to offer a different story, I wanted it to be something you could taste and eat and smell. 
that you could enter into with your animal body. So yeah. I really tried to do that. And really, and when you describe that, I keep thinking, and I and I promised myself I wouldn't reveal too much about this book, <laughs> but the scenes where they are with uh, uh, Saint Saint John or uh, Yachimin, and you describe the community there and this playful and this kind of this wild enthusiasm about the scripture that both men embodied and, and like Yachimin was kind of the old school and this <laughs> up and coming guy named Yeshua was interesting and exciting. But when you talk about all the people, I kept thinking of Burning Man. Right. Yeah. And, and this inventiveness is like we're beyond every boundary that we've known. And we're, of course, out in the wild in this nature where, where we're safe and yet anything can happen. You know, yeah. it's it's just a wonderful feeling when you write about that, that the, the reader can journey into that place and feel all of that sensuality. Thanks. I mean, I really, I, it was so helpful. So I went to Bard College and I got briefly the honor of studying under Bruce Chilton, um, very briefly, but I've really benefited from his work and his lectures. He was part of the Jesus Seminar. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he was really, his research into John the Baptist's movement and what it might've actually been like was so formative in me thinking about that, which is, it was like, there's a reason why people want to convert to your group. It's not because it's the word of God. It's because it's sexy and fun. And because times are really hard, the Romans are oppressing you. They've stolen your land. And this is a different option. And it it seems better. Um, and so it's important to, to, to represent that group as being compelling. It's something you'd actually want to yeah. join. Um, you know, and that's, that's so funny because when I talk to people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that have a different outlook about what work and play is <laughs> it really matches up with like well i'm just kind of you know tired of the way the system is running right now mm -hmm. and i'm going to do something totally different and i don't have all the answers uh with this which i think mary magdalene is, is why people are so attracted to her yeah she stood alone yeah and, and you described that so well in her childhood as the girl that was on the tower, communing with the stars. Her sister thinks she's weird. Her brother, she's way beyond her brother. Somehow she's she has this huge intellect that she can memorize things and never forget them, a photographic memory, so to speak. And she also is out there maybe in this communion with extraterrestrials that she doesn't even know is happening but things are happening and you keep giving these little clues and insights like the communion with the uh, leopards. Yeah. That they approach her and pet her and, and that is a great symbol of her vileness. Well, I would, it's interesting. I, I growing up had very big encounters with animals and they mm. were, and I had, of course I had parents who were, really interested in the history of religion and creating interfaith communities. And so definitely grew up around theologians, rabbis, priests, 
eco-anarchists, leaders, spiritual teachers. And yet for me, the biggest teachings always came from non-human teachers. They mm. came from encounters with, with mountain lions, with rattlesnakes, with vultures, with eagles. And so I created Miriam's own experiences. I did draw from the big cats, the snakes, and the birds most associated in the Mediterranean with the goddess. So I did want to associate her within a kind of constellation of images that make sense. That the yes. goddess was always seen flanked by lions. We have a nana, a starch, by leopards, by snakes, by doves. So I, I did consciously use symbols that would that to the the deeper reader and researcher of goddess traditions, they would prick up. But I was drawing on my own life, which is it was these encounters with otherness, with other types of intelligence that changed me, that directed me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in and, and one of the scenes where she's a witness, and this is right in the beginning of the book, of a woman who's being stoned to death because she's supposed to be a prostitute. And, um, and, and, it, and it was probably just a frustrated husband that, you know, projected this honor and created the lie. And Mary Magdalene, the little girl, comes and intervenes between this beaten woman and the men before she's killed and the vultures come in and the vultures freak out the men and they all run away but they came in kind of like our attack squadron so to speak and it was just interesting it, it's this this great message that if you really stay true to yourself spirit a higher power some sort of source is going to come to your assistance yeah, I mean, I think one of the realizations that Miriam has over time is that she has devoted herself to an ecological divine that is not necessarily on the side of humans. Not against humans, but they're not the main character. And I think yeah. that is a tension in her. You know, she loves human beings. She is married to kin to human beings. And the divine that she's in dialogue with says, yeah, you guys are okay, but something bigger is going on. And yeah. that can create real tension, I think, in her. It really is. And and maybe the whole message of Mary Magdalene and Jesus really wasn't made for the 2,000, in year, 2000 years that we've just experienced, yeah. the, the age of uh, man-made law, uh, Pisces, but it's the age that is coming now because Jesus huh. is very yeah. heart-centered. Yeah. But Mary, Mary Magdalene is very second chakra centered. She is like very much in her being of holding this energy for it to come through. And it always comes through when she needs it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like when he, she did her, her first healing. You know, she, something I've been thinking about with her is, so even in the iconography and the story of the gospels, she's there at the tomb. She's the anointer. She's there at the cross that when the disciples have fled, even, even the Roman writers who are definitely trying to get rid of these other women can't ignore the fact that she's there at the cross. She's there at the tomb. She's there at moments of transition, limbo. Think of yeah. her as being a death midwife. She's there to show us how to die, how to transition, how to move through experiences that are incredibly difficult. 
And something I have been thinking about is we're at this critical moment in humanity with massive extinctions that we've caused. So we're inside this massive moment of death. And she's shown up to say, I know how to do this. I know how to midwife you through this incredibly painful birth canal. And intellectually, I don't know how to do it. But I'll know that all of it will come because in my being, I understand this. Yeah. And she, she has developed that being. And, and, and you could say, oh, well, they both have been divinely guided and divinely uh, conceived to have this karma. But to me, you still have to do the lessons throughout your life to become and actualize okay. what that is. The seed may be there, the potential, but you still have to live this. And so much about this theme of the book is listening within. Yeah. And, and Miriam really listening and Yeshua in his own way listening and yeah. he being the big so-called rock star doing all of these incredible things. Miriam could have done all of those things too and decided not to. Yeah. She moves slower. I think a lot about how they, the difference between them is the difference in speeds that he is a burning bonfire and bonfires <laughs> burn up really quickly and she burns steady and slow. You know, at a certain point in the book, she bemoans the fact that she's not as quote unquote powerful as him, that she doesn't have the energy, like the ability to do what he does. Um, uh-huh. I don't want to spoil it. It happens towards the end, but yes, let's not spoil it. And yeah, and- and uh, this is a great time to take a little bit of a break because we have Matt asking the question. Sophie sounds very intelligent. Uh, duh, yes. I don't mean to put you down, Matt. Uh, what's that book called? The book is called... The Madonna the, Secret. The, the Madonna Secret right here. And also, I just wanted to say that you are on United Public Radio Network and UFO Paranormal Records. Network. And this show is called Becoming Quantum Conscious. And I'm Bart Sharp. We have Sophie Strand here. And not only can you see us on the regular radio out of New Orleans, but um, also on internet, on the UPRN website, on Roku. You can watch uh, us. And Sophie's definitely more prettier than I am. <laughs> Though I do have my Mary Magdalene red shirt. Yeah, it's today. a nice red. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a uh, this is Magdalene for me, and also we're on YouTube and Roku. Uh, I said that before, uh, Facebook, Spreaker, and other platforms. So um, we welcome everybody. I just wanted to read a quote from this because you're talking about death, and and one of the great things about this book is all the descriptions. You know, I keep you know. I keep thinking of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and the way he describes situations that you felt like you could feel the situation and feel what people felt. And that's what he wanted to bring the reader into in that uh, great uh, book, one of the greatest books in American history, in my opinion. So this is it. This is about death. Weep. Mourn. But know this, these ancestors told me birth is the closest thing to death and death is the closest thing to birth. Women have known this secret for thousands of years. Long ago, 
your people burn their dead in the floors of their homes. They they slept pressed against the bones of their chi- of their last children. They knew that they were truly not lost. The dead are but just seeds waiting to grow again. I mean, that's just so riveting. You just feel what that is. Of course, your mom, uh, Perdita Finn, has just uh, wrote a book about summoning the dead and having having the dead come into your life and help you uh, called Take Back the Magic. Uh, So I know, you know, like mama, like daughter type of thing. you know, um, and this is about fever because she she was very sick at one time in the book. She goes, and then she was gone, meaning the fever, leaving me with a fever so complete, my very skin felt it would burst and peel back from my bone. Like, wow. <laughs> uh, pretty intense. Um, how, how can you just... Uh, how do you come to such great descriptions? Well, that's very kind. I think that it's a compost heap of different things. One is that I read all the time. And I oftentimes say that the best way to think about writing and to feel into it is not to think about it, but to intuitively feel what writing feels like. And you do that by learning what you like to read. I read books. I've read so many books and thought of really felt in my body what descriptions work, what descriptions change me. So I think when I go down, sit down to write, I'm carrying all of these books into me and all of these ideas. Um, I also think that I was born as, as the child of writers who taught me to think about life as poetry. To, to always be creating poetry on my fingers, counting it as haiku syllables. My dad is a haiku poet. Um, so it's all of those things coming together. But one is, one is also, and I think the third is the most important, which is I've had some very difficult experiences in my life that I needed to scaffold in language. The only way to keep alive to keep surviving was to find a way to contain and alchemize and change those experiences with language. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what I, whenever I come to a story, I think about it as a, a mode of survival. How can I take experiences that are so big, that are so hard and put skin on them, give them a skeleton so that they keep us moving? Wow. It's a great way to deal with feeling fear. Fear in general is yeah. to really look it straight in the eye and describe it and know it clearly for exactly what it is. And then when you embody it again and accept it as what you have described it, it doesn't have nearly the load because you're no longer afraid of it or you're no longer trying to push it away from you. You realize that it's a part of you. And, yeah. uh, and so it just really sounds like you're doing that same thing. Um, I just wanted to ask you another question. Uh, and, and then I kind of want to get into some of the observations of Mary that I haven't really, or Miriam, uh, that uh, maybe we can talk about. But yeah. 
this is kind of a simple one. What kind of message would you like your reader to walk away with when they read this book? Oh, well, one is that there are so many myths, stories, paradigms right now that hold within them silenced voices. And I invite other people to interrogate the religions, the stories, the cultures they were raised within and look for the missing voices. Do you have an art form? Do you have music? Do you have your own writing? Can you bring these voices back to life? Um, but the other one is that, you know, it's at the very end, she says, don't, you know, this is not really spoiling it, but she's illiterate. She can't write. And she says the most important thing is not writing this story down. It's in keeping storytelling alive and breath, boats of breath that tie bodies mm -hmm. to other bodies. So I think the thing I want to keep alive is that we need to keep telling stories that they adapt to changing climatological and social circumstances. That every time we think we know a story, it's worth possibly retelling. Mm. Yeah, so maybe people can make up, make their own story. Yeah, tell your own to, Magdalene to, story. To, to, to Magdalene, yeah. which I think, I think many people want to do. And, exactly. And the, the, maybe they don't have the, the courage with that, to have that. Uh, you know, I, I, I go to this mountain in uh, France called Peche Cardu, and I channel. And when I go to this mountain or at a certain place in the base, it's really easy to... Uh, to, to channel uh, Magdalene. And one day she said, well, do you want to know what my energetic body is like? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, you know what the solar plexus is about the God within. And the second chakra is about your being, you know, your, your the way you hold power and your sexuality and your intuition and your creativity and those things, how you walk with that in your anger. And but she showed me that the chakra in between was the stomach and it held the energy of feeling everybody else's energy and not reacting to it. Huh. And when you can live in that state where you have no reaction, but just total allowance for everything and everyone around you. And as she said, when I was in France, I was around danger all the time and they would kill me and they killed people I loved. And yet I had to love them. I had to keep it at a higher place. Even they were dangerous. So I could be this clear channel. And when that happened, then the heart changed into the color of red that we commonly associate with Mary Magdalene, which is kind of like this, but it's a little bit darker. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, it's a very passionate and yet, caring, nurturing love that that, that color is all about. So interesting that you bring up the stomach. I don't know a lot about chakras, but, you know, my I have a genetic illness, and one of my main complaints, one of my most serious complaints is, um, you know, gastric ailments and stomach. Mm -hmm. I can't digest food. And so it's so interesting to think about that as being a place that symbolically, energetically represents this, this perhaps this invitation to digest resentment and anger. But um, also digest everybody's anger 
around the world and yeah. around everything because some people are that energetically big and they're very powerful people when they are energetically as like as big as the state of New York or the the the, the northeast uh, region of America, uh, but also they are connected to millions of people and they take on their energies and therefore the body has troubles <laughs> taking that on. Uh, it's a blessing and it's also a challenge to do that. Um, just food for thought. And you know, somebody like Jesus or Mary Magdalene, their energetic being was huge. They were taking this on and maybe that's why they were in nature so much because there's fewer people out in nature. You're isolated and you can start to have that peace inside of you. Yeah, I mean, also just practically, the Romans controlled all the cities. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the best ways to create a kind of countercultural movement was to leave civilization, to leave the city. Yeah. Um, and I think that right now, I'm not anti-city at all, but I do think that, you know, there's a certain, we have so much human noise in a city and so little mm. ability to get quiet enough to hear the other voices. Yeah. And I, and I think that, they invite us, you know, the Magdalene and Jesus at the river in Galilee, which would have been much closer to the ecology of Provence. We now know at that time period, you know, it invites us to sit with the birds, the foxes, the weeds, the greens and say, do you have better advice on how to manage this? Um, <laughs> I've gone to all my human teachers and they're pretty worried. Um, yeah. 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 And yeah, well, when you look at the, uh, the Jewish culture at that time, they were so stuck in their head with the scriptures. Well, it, I will and, counter and, that. And, 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 it, and, it, and it created a maze of consciousness. They were kind of lost in the maze of trying to find out the right answers. And both Miriam and Yeshua went straight to it. I will counter that and say, because okay. I do, I do always, there's always a strong urge to homogenize the Judaism of the time period. But there was Galilean Judaism. There were about like 20 different intersecting sects. So you have like Jerusalem Jews who are of course very scholarly, but the type of Judaism that, that Jesus comes out of is very animistic, very oral, very interesting, and really interested in oral storytelling and play. Um, kind of like wandering Zen masters, you know, at a certain time period. So yeah. I think it's always important to say that it's not really these like people squabbling over scripture. He comes out of this almost magical tradition of of northern judaism which is of a very different flavor and i think that's for me a really interesting conundrum which is he takes this very ecological animistic judaism of the north down to jerusalem jerusalem and of course he's mistranslated you know he's come it's coming up against just a different type of judaism and they both they agree about some things but they come they're experiencing empire in different ways and they're surviving so, it in different ways so one question i want you to continue with this <laughs> is that background a scene no no i mean i i think it's so interesting a scenes are definitely are, are i'm thinking about peasant agricultural folk practices you know wow. the judaism of the of the real people not the like as i do think it's quite likely that jesus studied with lots of different teachers you know we think of spiritual seekers that go to different communities he obviously landed with john the baptist but did he spend time with the essenes perhaps but i'm thinking of i'm thinking of what is the type of judaism he would have been raised in as a child 
What were the mm. stories? What were the beliefs that would have permeated his childhood? Because those things, those that's a strong sedimented layer. Uh, and and yeah. so I was really interested in the folk practices that we have a we have back formed an idea of Judaism that is strongly tainted by a kind of Christian anti-Semitism. And it's important to go back and see that it represented an ecosystem of different practices. Wow, interesting. And the way you describe him physically, <laughs> you know, he sounds like a wild man. He yeah. sounds a little bit crude and kind of like knocked around, like everything isn't in place, like a super handsome guy. And at the same time, He's very attractive, very charismatic, and people are naturally drawn to him. So he he has that rugged. Well, look I th about yeah, him. I think something I think a lot about is so he's preaching to Galileans who have been through some of the worst imperial violence. So they they come from an epigenetic history of empires, dislocation, murder, genocide, oppression. So they have that in their ancestry. But then on a day-to-day -day basis, they've had their land stolen by the Romans. They don't have enough money to pay their taxes or feed their family. The land that they considered them to be sacred has been stolen. And every couple of weeks, the Romans come and rape someone and kill everyone. Their revolts, they all fail. People are often murdered, families, children. So they're, these are hard people. These are people who are like, you know... Prophets come and go. They usually fail. Life is really hard. Hard. And these are people who it's hard to get their attention. It would be hard. Mm. And I think who's the kind of person who could come into that community of hardworking day laborers who have seen all of their hopes squashed again and again and get their attention, thinking it's a person who's like them, who's incredibly mm -hmm. physically charismatic, who knows how to engage people with his whole body. Yeah, and and it's it would be natural to think that oh he's going to lead the revolution because he's powerful because yeah you know as we start to talk about people in modern day or a lot of people they they have this thing that God will say, save all my problems yeah. if I'm faithful to God which means I'm faithful to religion and to me that's kind of doesn't exactly isn't exactly correct. God guides you and is a voice that's silent. And mm. much like Mary Magdalene, she said, I put myself in a situation and I open up the energy in my body to receive something higher. And I kind of get out of the way and let it happen. Yeah. And how do we how do we let ourselves be borrowed? That's a, yeah. such an interesting question. Which which is a real difference between what spirituality is and what the Jews needed to live a better life. Yeah, yeah. Because th there wasn't a great answer to that better life thing for those those people at that no, time. No, and in fact, I think one of the main impulses is, how do I write this as a tragedy and not a miracle story? Yeah. Because the story ends with Jerusalem burned, with most of the main characters dead. You know, we, we, we from the remove and the safety of different cultures of empire, we can view this as a miracle story, but for the people involved, it would feel like the end of the world. And so I did want to honor the fact that this is a story of apocalypse, of a personal apocalypse. Um, 
Yeah. And some and some places survive and still are, for example, Jerusalem, regardless yeah. of how the people live and die. Yeah. They they persevere. When I'm when I've been in Ireland before, you talk to the people and it's kind of the same thing. They they they've been taken over and people have bought their land or they've taken it away from them and et cetera as, as the history goes on. But the Irish people in their connection with the land remain. And it's almost like, well, I may not own that land now, but in a couple of generations, it'll, it'll come Irish owned by my, you know, grandchildren. <laughs> they kind of have that mindset. And, and this is kind of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has many changes because it's, it's kind of in the center of the world energetically in some respects. Maybe. Uh, it's a place that has attracted bloodshed and where, where children of many different beliefs have died. I mean, I, I've walked those roads. I got sick when I actually went to Israel to visit family for the first time. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me to think about. And it's like, also, also yeah. the place of beautiful consciousness. Yeah. yeah where things which, prosper and thrive. And, yeah. and grow and develop in, in my own sense. I've yeah, never oh. been there, but as a psychic, I travel all over the world and I'm always led to the power of that place. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've been there, I spent time there and I agree, but I also think that what I always want to gift to people is Miriam was responding to the place where she was born, the place where she knew the birds. She ate the food that was grown in the dirt. Now she's teaching us anything. It's not to fetishize somewhere else, but it's to root down to where we are. Like, where is our Jerusalem here? Like for me, what I think about is I read Jesus' parables and then I look outside my window right now to the Hudson Valley and say, what parables are here? What mm -hmm. do I have to notice? How do I come home to the patch of dirt below my feet? Um, and so yes. for me, the really important thing is to, to plant this story back in the ground in Jerusalem and Galilee and the Jordan River, but then yep. to come home to where I am. And to plant yourself into your into yeah. the earth of your community. Yeah. Uh, maybe even plant trees or plant <laughs> things that grow big and beautiful things Yeah. that everyone can benefit from. Yeah, food. I mean, I think... If Jesus has any teaching, it's share food. <laughs> share food with everyone. And I just, it's such a simple thing to do. Can we, can yeah. we support local farmers? Can we start gardens of our own? Can we, can we protect wild plants, you know, that we can eat? Um, but also, also that would be sharing knowledge and yeah. having the courage and bravery yeah. like yourself to write a book like this. This is, this book is, uh, 600 598 <laughs> pages folks yeah. it is thick and it's and it's it takes a while to read it because you have to think about a lot of the concepts in it it's not something that you're just flipping through and being entertained it yeah. like perplexes you to um think and to feel and to get all of those things in so this is part of what grows from the soil through your feet into your hands uh, and then onto a computer to type it all out. <laughs> I know. Um, 
Yeah, it was a thousand pages initially. And then oh, I edited God. it. Um, so I, I was like, that's way too long. Um, but yeah, still very long. Yeah, but, 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 but historical fictional novels in yeah. general are four to 600, 700 pages. Yeah. I wanted you know, to create so, an epic. I wanted it to feel like a full meal. Yeah. Yes, yes, it is an epic because you really tell the story of the times. And um, that's a wonderful thing. I don't think from what I've learned from this book and from your conversation of how much the Jewish people suffered every day and, and how they have held that probably maybe up yeah. to this day. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of collective. I mean, I think the one thing I'll say about that story is it's not just one people who are suffering under empire in that story. It's everybody. <laughs> um, everybody. <laughs> you see men hurting women, but those men in turn are being hurt by empire. That, you know, yeah. the the main, you know, the villain of the story is not a person. It's it's the it's the idea that we can that we can control other people and their land and tell them where they can go and can't go. The, um, begin, the beginning of man-made law. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And 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 also before, you know, what, what I always thought of John the Baptist is I studied uh, like the Knights Templar. They, uh -huh. the two people that they secretly worshipped and admired was John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, and that was kind of in that secret premise yeah. there with that. But you know. John the Baptist is that doorway to David, teachings yeah. of Solomon, the magic that Anna, who was the grandmother of Jesus, yeah. and that's a great book, Anna, Grandmother of Jesus, that all of them held this old magic to impart. And the thing with John the Baptist is kind of like he's the last assemblance of it, but he always seems to be kind of dried up and rigid. You know, like, well, I, I have my own feelings about, I've been very inspired by the historical work of uh, John Dominic Crossan, mm -hmm. just writing about the differences in what John was teaching with Jesus. And John was actually much more, you know, traditional in his mm. views. He seemed, seemed, he was really only heretical and only killed because he opposed Herod, but Herod was actually more heretical when it came to traditional Judaism. So it's really interesting things when you yeah. go back to the nitty gritty. Yeah. So he was actually teaching something that was pretty standard. Yeah. I and mean, I guess it just had to be, <laughs> you know, in general yeah. speaking. Yeah. Now we, we got about five more minutes and, yeah. and I just wanted, I didn't say this, but I wanted to say it now. If you have a question for Sophie, uh, you better get on your computer and type it out. Uh, and we'd, we'd be happy to feel that. Um, you know, I just love it. And this is so much about women now of this fierceness to express, but also this journey of knowing what's in your gut, knowing who you are, knowing something of like that connection of a greater wisdom and to stand up for that, you know, and, and, and like the Dalai Lama says, uh, Western women will change and heal the world. And uh, it's kind of like, that's a lot what you're describing is a per person whose accomplishments and wisdom 
transcend all of time. And she was not a Western woman. <laughs> no, she wasn't, but she is <laughs> yeah, what Western women can look for. And that's yeah. what they can learn in this book is like yeah. a story like that. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I just hope that we can, you know, this story was my emergency. You know, I thought to myself, what story would I want to heal? Would I want to heal in myself? Would I want to pour my soul into before I died? If I had a limited amount of time and given my health at that time period, it looked like I did. I thought this is the story that could keep me alive or I would definitely want to write before I die. Mm -hmm. And so I always want to just offer to people and to women, to anyone, what story is your emergency? That we're living in times that are awful dire. You know, we shouldn't waste time on stories that don't feel urgent. So, yeah. Oh, wow. What a beautiful thought. Yeah. And, and um, we were coming down to the last couple of minutes. So I'm going to say my parting shots, but I want you to think about this question. What would you or Mary Magdalene or one of the two give to people right now as a message, like advice or higher guidance, so to speak, or higher advice, excuse me. And while you think about that, I will say that this is Becoming Quantum Conscious, and my name is Bart Sharp, and next week we have Peter Craig with the title, Transformational Healing of the Higher Realms of God. This is a man who does a lot of healing work in the higher realms and sees a world consciousness, how it works and how it's dysfunctional by examining it, examine it from the higher realm. So this will be a really amazing show. I've pre-recorded it. So I already know it's an amazing show and uh, you are on United Public Radio Network and UFO Paranormal Radio Network uh, out of New Orleans, Louisiana. And we are seen on Roku, Facebook, YouTube, and other platforms all around the world. So I hope you enjoy us next week. And we have Sophie Strand here with her book, The Madonna Secret. And we never did cover like, well, I kind of know what the secret is. And if you read the book, you will know what the secret is. So we'll leave that secret. So Sophie. What advice do you give? What would Mary Magdalene say, as they say? W-W-M-M-D. Hmm. What would Mary Magdalene say? Well, I think at, at the heart of my book, it's not a book about theology. It's not a book about telling you what to do. It's a, book, it's a love story. And that's what I'm really interested in, are love stories. And Miriam follows what she loves, and for better or for worse. And I oftentimes think that in the natural world, beings follow their desire, their appetites, their tastes, their, their, their love, their attraction. And the bee goes into the flower, attracted by its color, attracted by its nectar, and incidentally pollinates so many other beings, incidentally weaves itself into mutual interdependence. And so I say to people, follow what you love. Follow the animals, the beings, the stories, the inquiries that you just can't stop thinking about. And trust that it will pull you into your ecological niche. It will pull you back into that ecological dialogue. Wow. Very profound. Thank you so much, Bart. This has been such a pleasure. Yes, it is. And uh, 
We want to thank everybody for tuning in and we hope to see you next week. And thank you so much again, Sophie Strand of the Madonna Secret. And we'll see you all next week on